Today's reading is from Acts chapter 21. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemy, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who is one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Ashley. Good morning, Redemption. Good to see you guys. Uh, if you're new here today, my name is Frank, and I'm the lead pastor of Redemption Arcadia, the uh, local uh, congregation here. Um, if you have your Bibles uh, or apps, please turn them to Acts chapter 21. We're going to do the first 26 verses in Acts uh, 21 today. And uh, for those of you who are here last week, you will be happy to know that there is only one sermon this Sunday. So um, we are continuing in Acts, and the next three or four weeks covers uh, Paul's final uh, arrival at Jerusalem, which we'll get at this morning. We've been talking about it for weeks now. Uh, his subsequent uh, really bogus uh, trial in Jerusalem. We get to work through all of that. And then eventually they move the jurisdiction of the trial to Caesarea. And, and uh, we're going to uh, see all of that over the next three or four weeks. And uh, if you notice, there was a slight change last week in the text of Acts. Um, it goes from uh, Paul and they uh, to we. So Luke, who is writing this and recording this, is now, has now rejoined the group. And so he's giving first-person testimony at this point uh, about what's happening in the book of Acts rather than listening to others and researching it. So he's actually uh, a part of this. And Paul today finally arrives in Jerusalem. It's after the, the text that we read today. He will arrive in Jerusalem uh, but he arrives there against the wishes of his friends and his colleagues, and, and we're set up for that bogus trial that we're going to cover next week. Uh, you know that uh, usually I have a big idea for what the text is about, and this morning I don't, I don't have that, but rather um, uh, a couple of things to think about, because these are two things that you and I wrestle with, I believe, all the time. Um, sometimes out loud, but most of the time just internally that we're struggling with. So there's not a principle or a proclamation or an imperative today, but just uh, an acknowledgement of some questions that we wrestle with that the text also wrestles with today. Here's the first one. Uh, have we struggled with our weaknesses and mortality, our personal weaknesses and mortality, to the point of death? to the point of death, both spiritual death and physical death? Have we wrestled with those things in light of, strained through the grid of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ and who he is? That's really important. You can wrestle with those things, but if you don't have the gospel, that becomes uh, sort of a, a hopeless endeavor, I think, in, in most respects. Because uh, ultimately what you're going to do is trust yourself, and eventually you realize you can't even uh, do that. So it's through the light of Jesus. And then second of all, 
Here's a big one. What do we do when it seems like we are getting conflicting messages in our life from God? What do we do when it seems like it appears that the Holy Spirit is speaking to us, but, it's, but it seems like maybe it's not even, it's not that it's not clear, it's that, it's that it maybe seems at times like the messages conflict. I'll bet that's never happened to anybody in this room, right? So we're going to deal with that as well. So go back to the beginning of chapter 21. We're going to do the first six verses, and then I get to have a map again this week. might be the last week for maps, but I'm so excited again. A map and last week for my laser pointer, so sorry. Uh, Verses 1 through 6, and when we had departed from them, that would be in Miletus. He was with the leaders in Ephesus. That's what we looked at last week. And we set sail. We came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. So they're they're really bound by the, the schedules of these cargo ships. These aren't cruise lines. These aren't passenger lines. They're just finding cargo ships that are going where they need to go, and they're bound uh, by that. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Paul's determined to go to Jerusalem, and they're telling him, don't go to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed, and we went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city, and kneeling down on the beach, we prayed said farewell to one another, and then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. So here's that map, and early on from leaving uh, Miletus here, they they took what's called a coasting vessel, which can really only take day trips, so this was a day to Kos, a day to Rhodes, a day to Patera, and then they found a much larger ship to navigate the Mediterranean, and this is 450 miles Uh, going to the south of Cyprus and and landing here in Syria, specifically at the city of Tyre. In the next few verses after this, we're going to see that they go to Ptolemais uh, and then down to Caesarea. Ptolemais is about 25 miles south, and then Caesarea is another 40 miles south. And then from there, in the verses after what was read, we're going to see that Paul travels to Jerusalem inland, which is about another uh, 60 miles. Just for those of you that that appreciate statistics like this, That means that Paul's missionary journey covered more than 2,500 miles. Uh, So in verses 4 through 7 of that first paragraph that we read, uh, the question becomes, what do we do with apparently conflicting messages from the Holy Spirit? Because it seems as though, it seems on the surface, maybe Paul's getting a message and his friends and and the other disciples are getting a a, a different message. Here's a question that we really need to ask, okay? And this, I know this sounds like it might be a loophole, but this, I believe, is what really is going on and what the commentators say. The, the messages weren't conflicting at all. The Holy Spirit was telling everybody pretty much the same thing. The Holy Spirit told Paul, doom awaits you in Jerusalem. He's telling the disciples and his friends, Paul's going to be in trouble when he goes to uh, Jerusalem. And so, Uh, Paul is on a mission, but his friends are saying to Paul, don't go, don't go. So these aren't necessarily conflicting spiritual revelations, 
but rather, and this is an important distinction, very important, we need to get this, all of us need to get this, there is a difference in how we interpret the message of God and how to apply it to our lives and how to move forward. There, there is going to be difference there. And very often, we mistake that for a conflicting message uh, from God. So they're actually receiving the same message from the Holy Spirit. And we, we get this mixed up, and here's why. And, and we just have to, this is part of, of going deeper with ourselves and really understanding who we are. But when we get a message that, that feels like there's trouble ahead it is most natural for us to interpret that as we're not supposed to go ahead. If it's going to be hard, we need to pull back. If it's going to be hard, we shouldn't do it. That's God telling us you shouldn't go over there because, of course, God wants us happy. God wants us uh, to have a life, lives of ease and comfort. And, okay, so that's just natural for what uh, we do. So we, we, need to, we need to get that. And Paul's friends understandably are hearing this, and they love him. And so they don't want to go. They don't want him to go. Isn't this understandable? You mean, and they're thinking, and if we can somehow help prevent Paul from meeting his demise or meeting hardship, why wouldn't we try to, why wouldn't we try to do that for our friends and our loved ones as well? It makes perfect sense to us. But Paul does not see it this way. And it's not that Paul is more spiritual. I think that Paul has been living with his call and his mission for a lot longer than his friends have, so he understands his call and his mission better than his friends. He's been living with it now for more than 20 years, and he fully understands it, and he's already uh, gone through some tremendous hardships. So Paul has a call on his life from God, and that involves tribulation and suffering. He was told from the very beginning when the resurrected Christ knocked him off of his ride on the road to Damascus. He said, you're going to evangelize Gentiles, your enemies, and you will suffer for it. This has been his call from the very beginning. And Paul said, I am committed to the mission, and so I'm going to move forward. And one reason he's determined to move forward is because the Holy Spirit is also telling him, you're going to face tribulation and imprisonment everywhere you go, including Jerusalem, but you must go. The Spirit is telling him, but you must go. Conrad Gempf, who's a marvelous New Testament scholar and has written a commentary on the book of Acts, writes about this right here in this section. He writes these words. When the Holy Spirit warns us that something is going to go wrong, it is not necessarily the case that he is saying the attempt should not be made. And now we get into some real familiar vernacular for some of us. This idea we get that a door has been closed does not always mean that we shouldn't try to go through that door. Right? You hear that all the time, oh, God closed this door. I know this is really hard for us because now you have to determine, well, when do we pound the door down? But there are times when God, it seems like the door is getting closed, but God says, okay, you still got to go through the door. It's just going to be really, really difficult. And I know I, I can't give you a formula. I can't give you a special prayer. You know, nobody can, by the way, so, you know, all right? So it's not like I'm deficient in that area or anything. It's a lot of things I'm deficient in, but. But, but also remember, here you go, this is not the first time this has happened. If you've read the Gospels, it's very similar to Jesus' ministry. 
Jesus knows when he turns his face for Jerusalem, and he knows that when he's headed for Jerusalem, he said it. He's, what's going to happen? I am going to go there. The elders are going to take me into custody. They are going to crucify me. I'm going to be raised three days later, but they're going to crucify me, and yet I am still going to go. And, of course, what did his disciples tell him? Here you go. It's, it's Mark chapter 8. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man, that would be Jesus, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. That verb there, take him aside, uh, this is one of the things about trying to get a little bit deeper into the language. That verb there literally means he violently grabbed him and pulled. He violently grabbed the Messiah because Peter knows better than Jesus and pulled him aside. It wasn't like, hey, Jesus, can I come and talk to you? He grabbed his arm and jerked him over to the side. And, and by the way, don't get mad at Peter. His intention, I, I believe, is really good. He doesn't want Jesus to go and get killed. But it's interesting how that happened. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, say, get behind me Satan, for you are, not getting, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. By, by the way, don't we all struggle with that? We all struggle with the fact that we're we're so interested in approval and affirmation from human beings that we struggle with when we're not going to get that because we have to do what God calls us to do. And we need to be concentrated on the things of, of, of God. And calling the crowd to him, Jesus, with his disciples, he said to them, and then this is the application for us. This is not just that Jesus is going to have a hard time or Paul is going to have a hard time. Here's the application for us. He said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That, that, that verb again, deny himself, literally means we need to spiritually die to ourselves. It's Jesus' command in the Beatitudes that we are to be poor in spirit. We are to understand that we have no power apart from God. We have no power apart from the gospel, and that means that we must die to ourselves. We have to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. So in this verse, there's sort of a, how we follow Jesus, there's sort of a, a, a sense of the universal and the unique. Everybody must die to themselves spiritually, but then each person has a particular cross or crosses that they must pick up. And, and each of our crosses is, is going to be different, I think. And, and so there's, a, there's, there's universal and, and unique to each of us, and that's helpful for understanding and that's what we're going we're gonna to do in following him. Verse 35, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? We have discussed this in the book of Acts, especially since uh, the, the advent of Paul's missionaries' journeys over and over, and here it is again, troubles, and hard times and tribulation and suffering do not mean that God's will, God's plan, and God's purpose is not being followed. We have to hear that. It is so easy for myself, for all of us, when we're in the middle of just junk that we hate, to say, I must not be in God's will right now. Okay, God has us exactly where he wants us, and he's with us in the midst of that. That's the power. So off they go. 
And now the passage that Ashley read for us. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. And the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt around his own feet and hands and said, Thus saith, thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am uh, ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. So uh, uh, this last stop before he goes inland to Jerusalem, and there are some events here. Remember Philip? So Philip, this is now... Chapter 8 of the book of Acts, he evangelized many in Samaria, and then he evangelized one down in Gaza, and that was the Ethiopian eunuch. That was chapter 8, that's Philip's um, ministry, and now he's got four unmarried daughters. Understand, chronologically, this is 20 years later. This is 20 years after uh, chapter 8, and his, and his daughters are there doing ministry. They, they are prophesying, and Agabus, he's another person that we've met before. Uh, he's the one who told in chapter 11 of the famine that was in uh, Jerusalem. And so Paul and Barnabas collected money in their church and took it down to Jerusalem to give them some relief. And he comes now with yet another prophecy, and this one he acts out. And this is not unusual. Paul would have really understood this because very often the Old Testament prophets, if you read through there, uh, act out their prophecies. They don't just say, thus saith the Lord. They don't just proclaim a word, but they also act it out sometimes and Jeremiah and Ezekiel especially uh, come to mind in those cases. And once again, I would say the Holy Spirit is very clear about what's going to happen, and yet God's people, great intentions, every single one of them, uh, had different interpretations and application of what should be done with the information. They, they all have a different strategy or agenda or what they want uh, to have happen. And again, I'll just say it again. The idea that once we come to Christ and we are filled with the Holy Spirit, everything is going to be made perfectly clear and it's just going to be smooth sailing. Anybody tells you that, they're not giving you the whole story. There is an element of the ideal and reality. And we live in reality. We would like to live in the ideal, but we live in the reality. And the thing I love about Scripture is that it acknowledges the reality and gives us the character that allows us to meet the demands of reality. And that is... That is really, really important to understand. Paul knows his call. Paul understands his mission. Paul is not going to back down. And again, we say, well, Paul has great courage. Yes, but he's filled with the Spirit. And he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that it is in his weakness that the power of Christ rests on him. So it's in the power of Christ that he is able to do this. And yet they are screaming at Paul. Here's what they're screaming in our vernacular. The door is closed. The door is closed. And Paul's saying, I don't think it's really closed. He's saying it's going to be really hard. And I'll tell you what, and if the door is closed, the Spirit is telling me I still need to go through that door. So a different interpretation. Um, 
think about this. I'll, I'll talk a little bit about marriage because I do a ton of you know, marriage stuff and, and I run into this a lot. Um, so you single people especially listen hard to this, okay? Um, you're wondering about this person, and some of you who are married, you're going to like reminisce now. You're wondering about this person that you, you think you might want to marry. And, you know, you're talking to people and you're praying about it and you feel like you've gotten the green light, you know. The Holy Spirit is saying, go. But also, because the Holy Spirit is good to us, even in the midst of that green light, he's also starting to whisper into your soul, this is going to be really hard. Marriage is really hard. This is going to be difficult because, shockingly, it is, okay? And, and so you say, okay, well, I'm going to get married anyway. This is the person, and then there are rough spots. And what happens? Every married person I've ever spoken to, no matter how good their marriage is, at some point has at least internally questioned whether or not they misread the Spirit. Every one of us. We all go through this. We, and we should say this out loud because most people are thinking to themselves, is this, am I the only one this has ever happened to? No. Because marriage is, is, is challenging and marriage is difficult. So is ministry. So is work. Can I get an amen? So is family. Should have gotten an amen on that one too. <laughs> Write this down. Okay, those of you who are note four words. Life is not perfect. Write that down, put it on your refrigerator, all that stuff, okay? Now, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> now, for Paul, interestingly enough, this was not just hard. He also says, and I'm ready to die. I'm ready to die. And we need to understand, it's not that, that Paul is cheapening the value of life here at all. That's not what he's doing. He's not cheapening the value of life. Some people think that's happening. What he's doing, though, is he has a way of looking at the inevitability of all things in life and realizing that once we are in Christ, we don't have anything to lose by being faithful. Now, that should be a disruptive truth in all of our lives. The fact that once we're in Christ, we ultimately really don't have anything to lose by being faithful to him. And that word ultimate, ultimately is, is really important. You know, it's, it's, it's uh, Sean Connery in, in the movie uh, The Untouchables, when he looks at the guys and he says, well, you're going to die of something, let's go. Ultimately, he's got this figured out. And so, uh, we don't have anything to lose. And, and I want you to consider this, when we first met Paul, what was he doing? He was killing those who lived by the name of Jesus. And now he's willing to die himself for the name of Jesus. He was killing those who live by the name of Jesus, and now he's willing to die for the name of Jesus. This is what's called transformation. It's transformation. A metamorphosis takes place when we come to Christ and we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, some of you know, occasionally I'll talk about this, and, and some of you don't like it, but I just, let's get it out in the open. I, here you go. I do not have a death wish. I don't. I'm not, I'm not wrestling with that. I, I, I don't have a death wish. And frankly, 
when it comes to death, I, I'm not excited about how I'm going to die. My prayer is that I go to sleep one night completely oblivious and I don't wake up the next morning. I just feel like that would be kind of the best uh, way to go. Um, I watched my mother over the last, she, she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's more than 10 years ago and, and went through you know, the moderate stage and the, the easy stage, the moderate stage. And then three years ago, they said she's in severe stage. And visiting her every Thursday morning, that was kind of my routine. And just watching her, you know, over the hill, over the, sorry, over the, she was over the hill, but over, over the time, just going downhill and, and, and dealing with that. And how, and, and here you go. Uh, not, not necessarily that it was hard on the people around her. She had tremendous care, wonderful care, very well taken care of. It's not that it was hard on us, but it was hard on her. Um, she, here you go. At one point, I finally figured it out. She knew enough to know that she didn't know anything. That's really hard and really frustrating and really difficult. And I look at that and I go, I just, I, I'm not that tough. I don't want to go through that. As a pastor, I've watched people diagnosed with terminal cancer and just literally watched them over the months, sometimes just weeks. And, and amazing courage provided by the Spirit that many of these people had. But I look at that and I go, I, I don't want to do that. I don't, I, don't, I'm not, I don't want to go through that, how I'm, I'm dying. Um, I, I really, I look to that great theologian Woody Allen at this point who said, at one time, I'm not afraid of death, I just don't want to be there when it happens, okay? So, so it, the process of dying, I'm not very happy about, but, but the being dead part is okay with me because Paul says in, his, in chapter one of his letter to the church at Philippi, it is far better that I depart this world and be with Jesus. It's far better. He's in, spoiler alert, this is after these trials in Jerusalem and in Caesarea, he's in Rome now in prison, and he's writing to the church at Philippi that it's possible that he could die there in prison. And he's saying, it would be far better if that's what happened because I'd be with Jesus. But then he says, but because it's God's good purpose, I know that I'm going to remain here with you for a little while longer so that I can uh, minister to you. And then he does. He's eventually released from the prison. Again, spoiler alert in the book of Acts. He's released from the prison in Rome, and he gets to visit churches again, and then it's later on in the mid-60s when they rearrest him and eventually execute him. He says, but God's telling me it's not my time. I, I can't go be with Jesus yet. I, I need to remain here and continue God's work, even though, here you go, it's going to be hard. So his friends eventually relent and even acknowledge that this is God's will. So off, their, off they go to uh, Jerusalem, starting in verse 17. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they've been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children 
or walk according to their customs. That's, that's a spin on what's really happening. Understand that, that they are, uh, they are exaggerating and even lying about what Paul's m- true message was. What then is this to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Uh, do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow, the Nazarite vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses. This would be in the temple. So so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what you, uh, they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance to the law, the Mosaic law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the, offspring, uh, the offering <laughs> presented for each one of them. The offspring, okay. Um, you know, baby dedication day and all that stuff. So, uh, so like I said, Jerusalem's about 60 miles from Caesarea. James has now become, clearly, he's emerged as the bishop or the lead pastor of the church at, at uh, Jerusalem, and they celebrate Paul's ministry to the Gentiles, but there's a problem, and we read about it. There's a problem there. People are exaggerating and misrepresenting what Paul is doing in his ministry. Uh, Circumcision is specifically singled out because for the Jew, it's considered the badge of God's covenant with his people. And they believe that Paul has been blaspheming against circumcision, maligning the idea of uh, circumcision. The way they spin it is, is Paul is saying, you don't have to have anything to do with circumcision or the law of Moses. What Paul is actually saying is you don't have to become a Jew first to become a Christian. You don't have to become Jewish first before you can follow Jesus. And there's a big, big difference. But they're spinning it for their, for their, own, for their own purposes and for their own agenda. And let me just say this. Exaggeration or misrepresentation of a ministry that is trouble to someone for no real reason is quite common. It's quite common. Uh, Back in the early to mid-90s, I began to hear about a church outside of Chicago called Willow Creek that was being led by a guy named Bill Hybels, and it was somewhat revolutionary, and I began to get bits and pieces and reading things and all this stuff, and I became very troubled by um, this church, Willow Creek. And uh, next thing you knew, it was a church of about 15,000 people, and, and I really thought that it was just filled with heresy and wrong method, all of this stuff, and even though I was down here in Phoenix and it's before social media and all that stuff, I, I had plenty to say in my position of authority, which was none, but I had plenty to say about it. And then somebody talked me into going in 1996 to a, uh, spending a whole week at Willow Creek Community Church um, and going to their services Wednesday night and Sunday morning and also a conference there that Bill Hybels and John Ortberg led. And I gotta tell you something, I was absolutely blown away by the gospel-centeredness of this church, how incredible it was, the sound teaching. And to this day, I will tell you that John Ortberg and Bill Hybels, although they don't know me personally, are, are people that I just look to and love and appreciate uh, so very, very much. And we would maybe differ on some nuances, but talk about gospel-centeredness. They were really gospel-centered. So Hybels didn't know me. I mean, he's, he's published 30 books, all of them bestsellers, except one, which happens to be my favorite book because I'm a contrarian. But, uh, so I wrote him a letter. 
and I confessed my sin against him. He would never would have known, but I just I wrote him and I said, "Here's what I did. Here's what I here's the here's the opinion I had, and here's what I was saying, and here's now I know the truth, and I I want you to forgive me. I'm sorry about this." And and he took the time to write me back, and it was really interesting what he wrote back. He, he wrote back, and first of all, he said, thank you for the letter. I really appreciate it. It's not very often that I get a letter like this. He said, however, it is quite often that people have misrepresented and exaggerated my ministry exactly as you have done. Isn't that interesting? So they're looking at what Paul is doing, and that's ex exactly what they're doing. And here you go. Here's some more application it, it, I, I don't mean this to, this is not designed to exalt myself and, and all that. It, it's designed to help us understand what I think is a really important principle in life and in our Christian faith. When Jesus calls us to deny ourselves and die to ourselves, that begins, not later, but it begins with self-examination introspection, self-awareness, and confession. It has to begin there. Self-examination, introspection, confession, those things have to happen. A self-awareness needs to develop. And doing that, here you go, doing that is going to bring a sense of loss in your life because now you're dealing with kind of really your false self. And, and, and a self that you've sort of built up and proclaimed, and, and you're going to lose that suddenly, and you're going to feel a loss, and our insecurities get exposed when we do that. We become really insecure. But that is when the grace of God begins to minister. It's Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. When he prays, that this thorn in his flesh would be removed. And God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. And my power is made perfect in your weakness. My power is made perfect in your insecurities, Paul. Don't you get it? This is about my power, not yours. And our idealism is exposed, and God can comfort us in our reality and give us the character to meet the demands of that reality, tough as it is. And we become aware of our issues, and we... And, and, and our need to work through them. And the reality is, if we are going to change, something must die. People want to change all the time, right? We want to change in myriad ways, whether it's our, 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 our weight and our bodies or our attitudes or our education. or what. Understand that if you're going to take on the, the challenge and the project of change in your life, something is going to have to die for this new thing to begin to live. And Jesus is, is presenting us, and Paul presents us with that spiritual reality in our lives. The challenge comes in that, that dying. As authors Richard Plass and James Cofield say, our false self never volunteers for its own funeral. We must proactively pursue our own death. You see, we, we speak in terms in the 20th and 21st century, I remember the 20th century, by the way, um, of self-realization and self-actualization. Okay, let's use those words and put them into biblical, uh, a biblical framework. Genuine biblical self-realization, because that's what we're told we're supposed to have is self-realization. Genuine biblical self-realization is not about accumulation or achievement 
or a claim. It's it's not about discovering some secret power within you or the giant within you, as you've heard. That's not what it's about. Genuine biblical self-realization is about humbly knowing who you are through the lens and the grid of who God is. And you say, well, what's the lens and the grid of who God is? The lens is his vision, and he's the creator, so he has a vision for us and the cosmos and the universe and the world. So it's his, the lens is his vision of who we are, created in his image, but fallen until we need Jesus. And the grid is the character of who he is, loving and filled with grace, wisdom, and majestic. That's where self-realization comes, is knowing ourselves through the lens and the grid of who God is. Here's the deal. The rumor was that Paul was commanding the Jews not to follow Moses, the law of Moses, ever. But that's simply not true. Paul Paul said no such thing. He's fine with people following the law. Go ahead, circumcise yourself if, if you want. What he was saying was that a Gentile did not have to first become a Jew to be saved by Jesus because salvation is by grace through faith. But that annoyed many people, just like it does today. You understand that genuine biblical grace and that concept, that understanding, can be really annoying to people. Really annoying. Paul says that the Gentiles do not have to somehow worthy themselves up to become good enough to become Christians. That's the whole point of the Christian faith, is that we can never be good enough, and Jesus is the one who finishes that work for us on the cross. Salvation by grace, it's unmerited favor, it's the purest gift ever. And certainly a robust understanding of that grace is going to call us into gratitude and joyful serving of others, but as a response to the good news in our life, not a cause of the good news or the grace in our life. We respond to grace. We don't earn grace. Paul even says this about giving your money to the church. Listen closely to what he says. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And I'll tell you, people get nervous when true grace is taught. They just do. They really do. And the reason is because we feel like we're losing control. We feel like we're losing control. And every one of us is prone to that. Here you go. Um, We have to allow God to work in a person. But we, we tend to prefer, all of us, myself included, we tend to prefer that we do the work in another person's life because then we can maybe try to control the outcome as well. Okay? Control is really, a, an, it's, a, it's a false god of ours. It's an idol. But God, he is gracious and loving and giving. He's the one who's in control. And that should be good news. That should be good news to us because it's a lot less to worry about. If you're a type A personality like me, this should be massively good news and this should be a wonderful day for all of us. We could have a type A meeting afterwards at 1047 exactly. And this should be really good news for all of us. And, and, and here's the other thing, giving up control to God and allowing him to do his will in our lives and submitting to that, it is going to be like a death to us. It, 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 something's going to die. But it's a good death. Anybody see the movie The Last Samurai with Tom Cruise and that other dude, I can't pronounce his name. Really, really 
good movie. There's this running conversation between the two of them during the whole, the whole movie about what constitutes a good death. Was it a good death? When, when we die to ourselves and we submit to God's will, that is a good death. In fact, it's the best death. Verses 23 and 24, as we wrap up, it's interesting. Here you go. Again, knowing that the Holy Spirit had told of the harsh realities awaiting Paul in the temple at Jerusalem uh, from the Jews, they, they knew that they couldn't convince him not to go, but now they have a new strategy. Hey, I'll tell you what. Since you're going to go anyway, we have a new strategy. What you're going to do is you're going to put on a little show. You're going to take the vow too. You're going to pay for these other guys. And then that's going to show everybody what a good little Jew you are, Paul. And then they're not going to arrest you and they're not going to bound you. So they have a, a different idea. And Paul says, all right, I'll do that. I'm still going to go to Jerusalem. I'll do it. Okay. He goes along with it. Again, it's part of Paul willing to be all things to all people so that some might come to Christ. And so he, he goes, but... Here's what happens. Look in verses 27 and 28. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the, the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. There's your preview for next week. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for, again, the life of Paul and, and the example that he is to us, and we just pray that we would have the courage to uh, allow ourselves to be filled with the Holy Spirit and the courage to wrestle with what that means uh, in our lives. Um, God, by, the, by your grace and the power of your Spirit, let us do that, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.